following talk is from St. Michael's Fowell, a gospel-centered community for Fowell, Teddington, and beyond. Our passion is to see every life following Jesus. For more information, visit our website, stmichaelsfowell.co.uk. Right, wonderful. We are going to turn now to God's Word. So uh, there's some Bibles dotted around. Grab a Bible and turn to Acts chapter 20. First person there, shout out a page number. 1117. Uh, Joe is there because Joe's doing the reading. Uh, so that was cheating. But um, fantastic. Uh, Joe's going to be reading from Acts chapter 20. Why don't I hand over to you, Joe, and then it'll be uh, James Bunyan. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought with his own blood she bought with his own blood. I know that I, after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now, commit to you, now I commit you to, do, to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have, not collect, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Okay, thanks very much for reading that. Hi, everyone. If you could build the perfectly stereotypical pastor, or if you like, English vicar, what would you put in? It's like a sort of branch of builder bear that never really got off the ground. If you put together a kind of stereotypical pastor, what would go in it? Discuss with the person next to you. Off you go. What did we... Obviously, we know, don't we? It goes without saying, 
we know that the perfect pastor would be about six foot four, bold with glasses, and a kind of overwhelming, unrelenting positivity. But let's just, let's just pretend, let's just go blue sky thinking. What kind of things might we have in a stereotypical pastor? What do you think? Who wants to be brave? Duncan. Good preacher, yeah. Oh, come on, there's more than that. What else have we got? Humility. Humility, very nice. Yeah. Go on, Thomas. Knowledgeable, yeah, brilliant one. Brilliant one. Integrity, did I hear one over here? Patience. Patience. Oh, lovely. Self-sacrificial. If I'm honest, I thought there'd be more funny ones, more tongue-in-cheek ones. But these are all, it's good. You've got great gospel instincts. And these are exactly these. Goofy tea. Goofy tea. That's perfect. That's exactly what we're looking for. Very slow voice. Yeah. Gosh, I'm going to spend the entire time deliberately speaking far too quickly now. Yeah. Like this. Um, brilliant. Yeah, those are the kind of things we kind of throw around. But, I mean, you've all got great instincts. You very much said things that we're going to look at, as did at uh, the four o'clock. Because we're looking at this speech that Paul makes to the Ephesian elders. We've been looking at this series in Acts. And it's a two-parter this week. So we've got this week... Uh, the first half of the speech. Next week, we're going to be looking at the second half of the speech. They very much kind of come together. Uh, he's been traveling towards Asia. We've got a, a map on the screen. You might know about this. This is technically called, by theologians, as well, Paul's third missionary journey. He traveled out through Asia towards Macedonia and Greece, and then he's going back towards Jerusalem, and he kind of cuts back through Asia. He wants to be quite quick, so he's got a load of mates in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, but he doesn't want to spend time there. He's rushing a little bit, so he goes down the road to the beach at a place called Miletus, or uh, I think that's how you say it. I've only ever seen it written down, if I'm honest. And they all travel out to see him, and they have this reunion where this great speech is delivered. And they are very much his mates. They're people that he spent a lot of time with. If you've got your Bibles open, uh, flip over the page to the start of Acts chapter 19, and you see about Paul's ministry in a place called Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. From sentence number eight, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate, they refused to believe, and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. He's done an awful lot of work in this part of the world. Three months to the Jewish people, his own people in the synagogue teaching, and then later two years in essentially the university in the lecture hall of Tyrannus speaking to everybody so that the word of the Lord went to all of Asia Minor. Isn't that remarkable? <laughs> he's spent time there. He's raised up these elders, these pastors, these vicars, if you like, who are going to take over from him. They're his friends. He's done life with them. He's lived with them. They know him. He knows them. So this speech is deeply personal. Now, 
as we dig into this series as well, saying at the start, this is kind of a little two-parter. In a sense, this is a sermon for me. In about a month's time, I'm going to be ordained in the Church of England, and you all will have to refer to me as Reverend Bunyan from then on. I'll become kind of a, a more official church leader, stop being a student. It, it's very much li- written to church leaders, to elders, and it's been really helpful preparing for that day as I sort of dug in for the next couple of weeks. But let's face it, it's in the Bible, it's for all of us too. Not just because we all know pastors, not just because actually we're all called to pastor each other. If you've got friends, pastor them. If you've got kids, then you're their primary pastor. Family members, older or younger. But more than that, we're going to speak about Jesus Christ and therefore we apply it to ourselves and our own lives. So before we dig in, why don't I quickly pray for us. Verse 32 says, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Father God, we commit ourselves now to the word of your grace, your Bible, which is so powerful to shape us, to mould us, to build us up, and give us an inheritance among God's people. Do that for us now, we pray. Amen. Amen. Three things we're going to see tonight. The first one is Paul's manner. Paul's manner. And there are handouts which will be useful for following along. If you've not got one, there's a few lying around on seats, so it's fine if there's a bit of shuffling as you grab or whatever, grab a pen or uh, some there. Paul's manner. Verse 17 says this, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived, the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. Three things that Paul refers to. He says, look, you, you guys seen my ministry. I can't kid you. You know what I'm like. And I served with humility. In C.S. Lewis's kind of great definition, humility is not a cringing kind of thinking less of yourself. It's just a natural thinking of yourself less. That's what Paul was like in his ministry. Secondly, tears. He was someone with deep sincerity. His ministry was heart, body, mind and soul. It was emotional. And thirdly, testing. Paul, it wasn't straightforward for him. Everywhere he went, he faced opposition, often violence. And in fact, as he's there on the beach in Miletus with all of his friends, he's facing the prospect of going to Jerusalem, knowing that could be his last journey. Look at verse 22. Look at this more next week. But he says, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. For Paul, this stuff is worth suffering for. Those are three things. 
And they're all things that are shaped and are only possible because of the Christian gospel for Paul. So his humility, that comes from the fact that his ministry is not about him, it's about someone much greater than he is. He basically doesn't really care if people don't know his name at the end, but he does care that they know the name Jesus. He speaks of one who is so much greater than he is. In terms of his testing, you you don't go through beatings and hardships knowing that in every city you're going to go through real difficulty unless it's for something worthwhile. And the gospel is infinitely worthwhile. He doesn't mind being beaten if he knows that as a direct result there'll be people who love Jesus in every city by the time he's finished. But the one I guess I want to drill down on this evening is the one that might have seemed a bit weird when he talked about tears. After all, many of us are British and we don't do that, do we? Not in public. Not ever. But Paul three times refers to his tears, both in that bit, and also in verse 31. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. And then when they part, verse 37, when Paul had finished, they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them the statement that they would never see his face again. Maybe not crying all of the time. That would be annoying. But certainly some of the time, there's something for Paul about the gospel that strikes deep into his soul. It's who he is deep down. I think for Paul, the gospel really matters. It is the thing that matters. A few years ago, I went to a pastor's conference uh, up in Ealing. And uh, one of the guys was giving the keynote speech in kind of in to Timothy, and he asked like, "What what does a pastor need to do or know?" And I sort of thought, "Well, I've heard this before. He'll just say you need to, you know, know the gospel really well and then love people." He didn't say that. Well, he did say that. He said that one of the points towards the end. But it was the points that came before that that really struck me because he was talking about uh, the pastor needs to have a deep sense. He was, he was a guy called Sinclair Ferguson, this guy. Amazing guy, very broad, deep Scottish accent. He said he um, needs to have a deep spiritual reality. Except it was more sort of a deep spiritual reality. It took me a little while to understand what he was saying. He says the pastor needs to really know that this stuff is true, and for it to really know that it really matters. This is not a game. The pastor cannot pass on the gospel unless with sincerity they believe the gospel. That when they speak, even if it's not the best speech in the world, people know that this guy really believes this stuff. This really matters. It matters for Paul. And it should matter for us. I've got a group uh, kind of keep in touch. On WhatsApp, we meet up a couple of times a year. Just 
youngish people who are also in Christian ministry. We kind of pray for each other, accountable to each other. And um, one of them's a, an elder of a church in Wales, and he sent me this this week. Well, he sent it to all of us. He has someone in his congregation who uh, sadly got ill and then passed away, an elderly person uh, this week. A really great Christian, been a Christian for a long, long time, beautifully generous, uh, amazing faith. Also happens to be my friend's grandmother, so not just a member of his church, but also grandmother, and he was tasked to go and see her. He sent this to us. Gents, appreciate prayers. It doesn't look like my nan is going to hang around after all. Mum has been called in this morning. I think this is probably it. Last night I went to see her, and I was able to read Psalm 16 with her. I think she's ready to go home. I feel the Lord has been particularly kind to me to have that privilege. It's strange, as I read, for the first time perhaps in my life, I felt I was speaking to a sister more than a grandmother. God preparing my heart for our eternal relationship. Psalm 16 says, You make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. We don't often reflect on end-of-life stuff. But it's then it's brought into sharp relief that this stuff really matters. It matters that faced with death, this wonderful Christian woman knew that she had eternal pleasures at the right hand of God. Who knows what Paul had walked through with people in Ephesus, who had buried, who had married, who had just done life with, but the whole time he did, he urged people night and day with tears, verse 31 says, believe in Jesus, he loves you. He did it with deep sincerity. And so it's worth asking ourselves straight away, do we have the same sense of deep sincerity? It's a risk for me, I think, because I basically love my job. I love this church, and it basically feels every week like I'm coming in and just hanging out with my mates. We have a lot of fun, I think. Well, I certainly have a lot of fun. Do a lot of laughing. The food here is great. People are lovely. It'd be very tempting for this just to be kind of fun and to end up being a bit of a game. I think we never quite, that sincerity that we, we maybe held when we first became a Christian, we never just drop that straight away. But maybe as life gets busier, the job gets more intense, we just, the first priority of our life just gets gradually crowded out. And the deep things of eternity, joy, lives changed, the deep sacrifice that once we were prepared to make just gets slightly sidelined. It's striking. I used to be a student worker for an organization called UCCF. Used to sometimes talk to all kinds of people of all ages in churches. And sometimes people who are in their kind of 40s and 50s say, oh, yeah, I remember being in Christian unions. God, I used to be so zealous back then. That's a shame. Here's Paul, who never lost his zeal. Paul's manner is that this really matters. Secondly, Paul's method. How is it that Paul does what he does? Does he just know his classical literature? He's got a degree in social work? Well, no, it's, it's very, very straightforward. 
Listen to these, these verses, verse 20 and 21. You'll see how many of them are speaking words. Verse 20, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that will be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Preaching, teaching, declaring, later on in the letter in the speech, proclaiming. Basically, Paul talks about Jesus. It's that simple. Publicly, in the lecture hall, privately, from house to house, to young and old, it says to Jewish people, and to everyone else who's not Jewish. He just speaks about Jesus. Now, why is it that Christian ministry, that the mission of the church is, is so much to do with just speaking? Well, it's because Christianity is about an idea. It's about a person. It's good news. Something has happened in history that has changed everything. And we need to tell people. The gospel is the greatest story that has ever been told. And because it's the greatest story, it deserves to be told. So it's all about speaking about Jesus. You can't tell the details without words. It says, doesn't it, that Paul spoke for two years in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and everyone in Asia Minor heard the word of the Lord. That is huge. If we have the map again, Asia Minor is basically that little area that is kind of modern-day Turkey, a huge landmass. Now, I don't quite know exactly what it means that everyone heard the word of the Lord. I don't think it means that everyone became a Christian, because there are plenty there who weren't. Neither do I think that it means that just uh, everyone had capacity to hear it but didn't actually hear it. It seems to be something deeper than that. No, everyone heard something meaningful about Jesus Christ in that whole country because of what Paul was doing. That's a remarkable thing. The thing that often surprised people about Christianity is the first disciples, I think excluding Paul, were just ordinary, uneducated people. And yet their opponents said, these men have turned the world upside down. And it's because of an idea, the gospel. And frankly, it is still turning the world upside down today. Victor Hugo, off of Les Miserables, says this, nothing else in the world... Not all the armies is so powerful as an idea whose time has come. Nothing else in the world is as powerful as an idea whose time has come. This is how the apostles turn the world upside down. It feels so weak, doesn't it? I don't know if you've ever had the experience of sharing what you believe about Christianity with someone, and as you're saying it, you're like, it sounds nuts. <laughs> well, this sounds weak. It doesn't sound like it's going to do much. Do we really think that we're just going to tell people about Jesus and somehow society's going to be transformed and everyone's going to become a Christian? And... Well, yeah. We think that if we want to see this world turned upside down all over again, if we want to change lives and move mountains, shake this land and fill our churches again, Though some may reject it, we tell people about Jesus. 
That is deep down what we must be about as this church. As I get made an official rev, there'll be loads of things that I could give all of my time to in the future. I must make sure I'm hearing the good news about Jesus and I'm speaking the good news about Jesus. As a church family, there's loads of stuff that we could be doing and we do loads of brilliant stuff and we're getting larger as a church. There's loads of opportunity. We must be hearing about Jesus and talking about Jesus. That's Paul's method, talking about Jesus. And thirdly, Paul's message. And his message is the unchanging message of the gospel. You probably know it. But let's talk about it anyway, shall we? Verse 21 and verse 27. Verse 21, he says, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Verse 27, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Paul, in this passage, Luke doesn't record him saying the gospel completely explicitly. This is probably a summary of a longer speech. And actually, Paul's done that earlier in Acts. But he does refer to the Christian gospel twice. Two ways of referring to it without being explicit. One, the response of the gospel. And secondly, the kind of, uh, the word of the gospel, if I can put it that way. First of all, the response of the gospel. How do you respond when you hear about Jesus? Well, it's repentance and faith. Verse 21, turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. To repent means to turn away from bad things. To turn away from our sin, leave it behind, recognize it for what it is. Like you're turning away from the smell of vomit. And you're turning instead towards Jesus, in whom you put your faith and trust. Doing everything he says, because that's how we show that we trust him. Repentance and faith. It's the response of the gospel. And he also talks about the word of the gospel, doesn't he? Verse 27, he talks about, I did not hesitate to teach you the whole counsel of God. Which is a shorthand way of saying the whole Bible. There's is a long book. God's gospel outline, if you like, is a thousand pages and a bit more. It's 66 different books. Paul's saying, I'll teach all of it. Because all of it is about Jesus. The bits that are tricky to understand, more straightforward bits, I'll do it all. It's the word of the gospel. It's, there's a depth to it. That means although on the one hand it can be summarised with a few words, it can take an entire lifetime, several lifetimes, to gain an intimacy with what God has said in it. It's kind of like he said two ways of saying the same thing. This is what I was all about. So you might ask, what exactly is this gospel? Good question. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the story of humanity. The fact that in the beginning we were made by God to love him and know him. To experience eternal joy and instead we turned away from him. Turned into ourselves. Begun to use all the beautiful things in this world that he gave us. Not for other people and not for him but for ourselves. We took amazing gifts like our creativity and we turned them towards evil. 
We took all of his things and we pretended like he didn't exist. And we lived for ourselves. We made a mess of this planet. And God rightly hates our sin. But instead of giving us what our sins deserved, he gave us instead his son. The Bible says that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live amongst us, to experience what it is like to be human, to love us, to teach us, and ultimately to go and die in our place on a cross, taking God's wrath and anger at sin, taking all the illness of this world upon his own shoulders and dying, and afterwards rising again, the suffering servant, now enthroned upon high, and his arms are open, not in judgment, but in invitation, saying to this world, you can be loved and known by a God who is your father. You can have all of your sins forgiven, and you can be made right. It is so much more than humanity deserves. And it's so much better than we could possibly dream. It's that that gets Paul up in the morning, that directs his manner, that shapes his method, that is the content of his message. Now, how do we apply this to ourselves? How do we do that? Well, part of the answer is that this is a two-parter. So this week, we're looking back And actually, Paul is sending us up to look forward. And he's about to turn to the Ephesian elders and say, that's what I was doing. Here's what I want you to be doing. So not a bad idea to come back next week. But I think we can apply this bit directly to us too. First of all, it's worth saying that there is no perfect pastor. I know we know that. There is no perfect pastor. But we must have pastors who have this gospel manner, who have this gospel message and proclaim this gospel message. You may go to other churches, you may one day be part of a PCC here or something or have an input into looking for new staff and new pastors. Do not compromise on these three things. They are essential. We want pastors who are deeply impacted by the gospel. But secondly, whether that's true for our pastors, it's got to be true for ourselves, isn't it? We want to be people that people say of us, yeah, they're all right, but they really love Jesus. For all of us, this stuff really matters. Why don't we pray? Father God, we praise you for the people that we have known that shared the good news of Jesus with us. We thank you here at St. Michael's for the leaders of our young people's groups, of our services, of our home groups. Thank you for blessing us with people who take you really seriously. We pray that they might continue to do so, that all of us might be deeply moved by the gospel. And we thank you ultimately for Jesus, who is so good to us who is the ultimate pastor, who cares deeply for his church. Amen.